Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fellow time travelers, how the devil are you? Great to have you with me as we travel through space and time together. More and more of us all the time. We're quite a we're quite a scrum now moving through infinity. Big thanks as always to everyone who's joined me on my Patreon site. Uh, it's the support, the financial support, when you get right down to it, that keeps the wheels on the bus and helps us, Paul and I, keep this series happening. So if you're already there, thank you. If you're not a Patreon member yet, but you'd like to join and become part of the extended family of curious, inquiring, history-contemplating people, simply go to patreon.com, look for me by name, Pay a small subscription fee. You can pay monthly or you can pay by the year. And it is cheaper if you go for the whole year at once, as you might expect. But whatever way you do it, you'll be more than welcome. Uh, You support the podcasts, but you also get access to exclusive material. You hear my thoughts before anybody else. There's competitions, there's question and answer sessions, all of that. I'll hope to see you there. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The 4th of June, 1924, they set off from advanced base camp at 21,330 feet above sea level. As the cloud clears, two black dots are briefly seen from a distance moving against the snow, suspended in the space between Earth and forever. In the tragedy of their loss is the unblemished heart of adventure. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In the last episode it was 1918 when the world's deadliest pandemic took its grip. Where are we this week? Hi Paul and fellow time travellers. Yes, last week uh, we walked in a world devastated by years of war. A war which was still raging. Now severely weakened, that world, that population found itself facing an even deadlier foe. The influenza pandemic thereby hangs a tale. This week's episode switches scale, taking us from the macro to the micro It's a moment in history that's wreathed in bravery and tragedy as two men set off to stand on the roof of the world. 
We're at Mount Everest with George Mallory and Andrew Irvin. The Roof of the World, which is a, a subject of fascination for me, it has been allied to or bolted on to my interest in the First World War. There's a wonderful writer and anthropologist. He's a Canadian guy. His name's Wade Davis. And he's got one of those um, great job titles, or he had, I haven't actually, <laughs> I don't know what his employment circumstances are right now, but he was certainly uh, something like Explorer at Large for National Geographic magazine. <laughs> Is there a cooler job title? Anyway, Explorer at Large, and he, he, he writes, and one of the books was um, called Into the Silence, and it's a great big doorstop of a thing, and it's all about the Mallory and Irvin attempt on Everest in 19... Well, it, it climaxed in 1924, but there's a long backstory, and partly on account of the way in which uh, Davis writes about it, I became captivated because he explains that the team that went to Everest for the 1924 attempt on the summit, they had all served in the First World War. They'd all been there. They'd all been on the Western Front or elsewhere. And they'd all lost friends and so on and seen terrible things, probably done terrible things. Who knows? And that they had been climbers before. They were all members of climbing clubs all over the place. Then they went to the war and those that survived the war came back and they, they picked up their lives again. And this idea of Into the Silence, which is the title of the book, a lot of them went back to climbing as a way to get themselves literally and metaphorically away from the trenches. You know, to get up high, you know, where the air was clean. They, they, they wanted literal and psychological distance. Or some of them did. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all of them, but it was a theme of, of what they were about in the years after the war, and I, I find that a profoundly moving thought. And you know, there was also stuff about you, you know. I think I'm sure most of us who aren't mountaineers, you think, why would you? Why would you put your life at risk in that way? And I, I've um, I've spent quite a bit of time. Some of the filming that I've done over the years has brought me into the path of climbers. I've even done a bit myself. I mean, I, I did a bit. I did a, a 800 foot ascent of a cliff in Yosemite, right by um, El Capitan. We could see El Capitan from where we were, and I've dangled. <laughs> I've done a bit of dangling myself. And you thought, God, it's terrifying. I was scared throughout. And I've talked to guys who talk about feeding the rat, you know, where they say, yeah, we're scared as well, but there's a kind of a compulsion to feed the rat, the rat being fear, that if you don't do it for a few months, you can feel the rat gnawing at you and they have to go and feed the rat. They talk about feeding the rat and and within that or part of that, Mallory, George Mallory, and he was an Englishman, he intimated to friends that because of what they had seen in the war, they felt close to death. You know, they had all had, had these experiences where they had been talking to a pal of a morning or whatever and then 10 minutes later... He'd gone one way and they'd gone another, and ten minutes later that guy got vaporised by a shell blast. And they saw how 
you know, death was was only a, a push a gossamer thin curtain, and there it was, the other side, and that it bred in them a kind of a not a fearlessness exactly, but they they had a kind of a realism about them about about death being close by, and so when it came to being, you know, twenty nine thousand feet up a rock wall, and the possibility of dying, they'd seen it, they'd seen friends kind of step through the curtain, and it, it was it was immediate. To them, it was there. Anyway, it speaks to me about about what it is to be human and alive. You know, life and death are obviously the two sides of the same coin. And you know, most of us spend most of our time pretending death doesn't exist and it's not there and it's never going to happen. But for some others, it's right there. You know, they encounter both imposters, treat them just the same. You know, life, death, whatever. And so that's that's why I'm I'm so interested. Everest was summited for the first time by Edmund Hillary and Chapa Tensing. But before that, when that hadn't been accomplished yet, it's a bit like the four-minute mile. You know, Roger Bannister eventually broke the four-minute mile, and then everybody could suddenly do it. It was like a psychological barrier had been broken. You know, science had said no one will ever run them a mile in under four minutes. But then as soon as Roger Bannister did it, <laughs> somebody else did it a fortnight later or something, because it, once it was made possible. And so I'm very, I'm especially interested in the contemplation of Everest that went on before it had been climbed, when it was impossible. It was the people that contemplated the impossible. You know, once one person has rode across the Atlantic, then everyone else thinks, well, it can be done. And that's a very different proposition then. So there you go, there's a, a sort of a rambling background to why this one matters to me in the way that it does. The key players already mentioned, George Mallory, Andrew Irvin, Englishmen, mountaineers of great experience. They had been selected, you know, to be part of a much bigger squad that went out to Everest, tallest mountain in the world, sits between... Uh, you know, it occupies an enormous space in between Nepal and Tibet. Interestingly, it was named for George Everest. And the interesting thing there is, um, we all call it Mount Everest, but George pronounced his surname Everest. So really, it's Mount Everest, <laughs> if you wanted to be pedantic about it but obviously for most of us you just look at the word and read it and it comes out Everest anyway I find that an interesting little anecdote that you know the, the biggest mountain in the world we're all mispronouncing the name in insofar as the family name was Everest why why was it named after him hey, well he was sorry he was the former surveyor general of India and before you know attempts to climb it it was that part of the world, certainly for Westerners, you know, Europeans or whatever, Englishmen, it was terra incognita. It was the people living there, like the Sherpas, they knew about, they knew about it. But for us, it was an unknown quantity. And because Britain had the empire and Britain had India, they sent people out to survey exactly what they had. We own India now. Let's find out what the hell it is. And so they went off and so they sent out teams of surveyors with chains, that's how they did it in those days, you know, great long chains that don't stretch, like a rope stretches and so you get inaccuracies, but with a chain it's... But, and so they just advanced into the wilderness with theodolites and mapped this unknown, unknown to them, 
territory, fording rivers and you know stumbling about. Eventually, they get to the Himalaya, and they can see Everest. Eventually, I'm just going to call it Everest. Obviously, like everybody else does, they can see it, and then the calculations are done, mathematics are done based on the readings from the survey, and they realise, oh my God, this is the biggest mountain. You know, this is. Well, it is what the Himalaya is. It's the biggest mountain range on Earth. And there's always guys that want to climb the highest, swim the furthest, go down the deepest. And so it became an obsession. People wanting to get at the Himalaya range and, of course, Everest, which was the daddy. And so the mountain was named, but long before it was climbed, they could see it, they knew what height it was, and it, they called it Mount Everest after, after the Surveyor General of India. Incidentally, it's worth, obviously, you know, we talk about discovering these things. They're only being discovered as far as Europe's concerned. And for the people that lived in the shadow, so to speak, of Everest, they called it Chonalungma, which means something like the goddess mother of earth or the goddess mother of all. So it had a personality for them. And up there, out of sight, was was the goddess creator mother. Because the the water that life depended upon was coming out of the high ground up there somewhere. So, you know, all, all life depended on Chonalungma. And the population, they didn't climb it, possibly for all sorts of reasons, but not least because it was disrespectful. It would have been like trespassing into the home of a goddess. And so they didn't do it. They were on the sort of slopes of it, but they wouldn't have gone up you know, it was wrong. It was like a, a sin or whatever. They didn't go. Which always reminds me, when I learned that about Everest, it reminds me of, uh, well, Europeans called Ayers Rock, that great monstrous pebble. And it is a pebble. It's not actually fixed onto the desert it sits on. But more recently we've learned to call it Uluru, which is the, the name given to it by the local Aboriginal people, the people that have always lived around it. And you'll all have seen in the past pictures of Europeans going up it, sort of strenuous walk up to the top of Ayers Rock or Uluru. But then eventually, as they began to take account of and respect local feelings, they learned from the local population that you're not supposed to go up there. They had never gone up there. Because in the local understanding of the dream time and the dreaming, and Uluru was was a high point from which to descend. It was not a summit up to which you might climb. It's difficult to get your head around that, but that's the point. You only come down from Uluru. You don't go up it. So they were appalled at all the Europeans making a tourist attraction of it and going up it. So same sort of thing. You know, we, we, we blundered into all of these places and didn't take account of local feelings, which is all part of the story. But anyway, so these guys, right, with their climbers, adventurers, in the aftermath of of the horror of, of the First World War and as part of their, whether they thought of it as therapy or not, probably didn't, um, but in, in terms of just getting on with their lives and, and reclaiming some kind of a return to the people that they had been before it, they embark on this expedition. And at the climax of the expedition... George Mallory and Andrew Irvin are selected as the two that are going to make the final push. So everyone has gone up a certain way or are getting fewer and fewer all the time until eventually 
they're at a, a camp called Advanced Base Camp, and that's at 21,330 feet. So it's very high up. And the decision is made that Mallory and Irvin will head for the top, just the two of them. So off they go, they sally forth, and this is on the 4th of June, 1924. They, they depart Advanced Base Camp. Farewell. And then four days later, on the 8th of June, from far below, down at Camp 5, well below where Mallory and Irvin now are, another team member, Noel Odell, is watching them. Well, he's, he's, he's watching binoculars looking up. And he, well, he watches a legend being sketched onto a canvas of ice and snow and rock. Because what he sees are two tiny dots on the white. Okay? Just, you can see them. And the tiny dots are moving infinitesimally across this vastness. In his diary he wrote, at 12.50 saw Mallory and Irvin on ridge nearing base of final pyramid. And then a few, so that, that was all he wrote, just a quick, just a quick note. And then a few days later he, he expanded the thought. He said, or he wrote, there was a sudden clearing of the atmosphere and the entire summit ridge and final peak of Everest were unveiled. My eyes became fixed on one tiny black spot, silhouetted on a small snow crest beneath a rock step in the ridge. The black spot moved. Another black spot became apparent and moved up the snow to join the other on the crest. The first then approached the great rock step and shortly emerged on top. The second did likewise. Then the whole fascinating vision vanished, enveloped in cloud once more. There was but one explanation. It was Mallory and his companion moving, as I could see even at that great distance, with considerable alacrity, realising doubtless that they had none too many hours of daylight to reach the summit from their present position. I can barely read that without my voice cracking. That, that kills me. You know, the, the, there they were rendered down to nothing more than the size of full stops on a printed page. And like that, they were gone. They vanished, really, to all intents and purposes. And and they did vanish. That's the legend. I mean, that's what makes the 1924 expedition so immortal. They just, we don't know what happened next. And nothing was heard again. No trace Nothing. Until 1999, okay, it's 1924, 1999, when the uh, Mallory and Irvin research expedition went up. It was timed to mark the 75th anniversary of, of their disappearance. And they went up looking for them because they knew that uh, Mallory, I think it was one of them anyway, they knew had taken a camera, a little camera, and that if they had summited, that they would have taken a photograph. <laughs> They'd have done a selfie or something, you know, on the summit. 
And so the idea was that if they could find them, if they could find their bodies, they knew they must be up there somewhere, uh, maybe there'd be the camera. And the, the conditions up there, the extreme cold, would have been expected to preserve the film. And they could have got the film and they could have developed it and maybe they would have seen something, some kind of conclusive proof of what had, what had happened. But, well, they, they didn't find a camera, but they, they did find Mallory, which is extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of bodies up there. that It horrifies me now about Everest. You know, thousands of people seek to climb every year. And there's all these dead bodies because when people die, when people die up there all the time, in avalanches or from lack of oxygen or from, you know, they call it the dead zone up there. You can, Once you get above, I think it's 20,000 feet or something, uh, you're dying. I mean, they got with oxygen, but you're dying. You've got a limited amount of time you can be up there and then you've got to get back to, you know, you've got to get back down or the lack of oxygen will eventually deal with you and kill you. And so the, the place up there is littered. It's a graveyard. So there's all these bodies, because what are you going to do? To try to bring anyone down would be to risk the lives of anyone that, that did so, and the person's dead, so why why risk someone else dying? So that's that's the philosophy up there. There's, all, there's hundreds of dead bodies up there. So they went looking, and they found Mallory, and they know it was Mallory because, believe it or believe it not, there was a, a piece of clothing that the, that the desiccated, mummy-like, body was wearing that had the that had a, a name tag in it Mallory like folk used to do at school with their PE kit it was probably because it was a team and they were all going up and they had to sort out their clothes from one another anyway so they found a bit of clothing with Mallory even the thought of the clothing they were wearing is heartbreaking really when climbers go up now you know they're like Michelin men with their puffer jacket whatever you know that they wear to go up with their helmets and their goggles and all of the rest of it these guys were up in uh, tweed jackets and hobnail boots. It's, it, it's just, it's just humbling how they, you know, what they, what they wore to, to, to because it's, you know, there was no, there was Gore-Tex in nineteen twenty four. So anyway, so they found, they found Mallory's body, and of course they, they had to just leave it, which, which even, even, even to some extent, I think the, the disturbance of them, I think, I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, it's a bit like Utsi, you know, the, the ice man that was found up in the Alps, the hunter from thousands of years ago that they found, and he, they think he was killed, murdered by another hunter, you know, because he had, he had wounds. And there's something about the thought of someone lying uh, preserved for all of that time and then being, I, don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, but it, it does give me pause. But no one's found... Irvin yet, and maybe Irvin had a camera. Who knows? So maybe the maybe the final piece of the puzzle will one day be be found. But at the moment, we can at least speculate that perhaps because as 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 Odell said, the conditions were perfect. You know, the weather was being relatively kind, and maybe maybe they got to the summit, and then whatever overtook them together or perhaps separately maybe one died first and then the other tried to carry on and who knows but maybe before they died they stood on the roof of the world and you know until proven otherwise I'd like to think that they did 
And, you know, you get to the heart of it, really. You get, and why it's in my love letter to the world is there in the tragedy of, of their loss. I mean, they were just young men. Is the, is the unblemished heart of adventure. The, the very meaning of endeavour. Whether or not they reached the summit, that, that point that they reached, where Noel Odell saw them, was the highest that human beings had got to. That record that they set in 1924 was not bested for another 30 years. Even if that was as high as they got, even if they didn't get another foot higher before they were overtaken by events, that was still a, a monumental effort that lasted for 30 years. But to me, it's just me, but I say they went higher than the summit in 1924. You know, as, as far as my story of the world is concerned, they, they went beyond 29,031 feet. Because in every way that mattered, they pushed beyond their own limits. They were operating and pushed beyond what they were capable of, one way or another. And to me, they pushed it all the way into the invisible. They went to that place that is transcendent, that's made of the supreme effort that circumstances or ambition or endeavour lead a handful of people to grasp towards it's just that I, I cannot get beyond Noel Liddell's testimony about the two black dots so vulnerable so exposed almost invisible anyway reduced to just dots and then and then nothing nothing you know, I mentioned it wasn't until 1953 then that Everest was actually summited by Edmund Hillary, who's a Kiwi, a New Zealander, New Zealand-born, and uh, a, a Nepali-Indian uh, Sherpa called Tenzing Norgay. And there's, there's endless speculation goes on to this day about which one of the two of them actually, <laughs> who got up first, because somebody's got to go first, someone's got to lead and then kind of, you know, hold the rope while the other one comes up. Um, and there's some people say, oh, it would have been, it was Tenzing Norgay and, you know, others say, no, it was Edmund Hillary. And I, I, I as far as I know, I don't think the matter was ever settled. So there's always mystery around what happens at the summit. But it haunts me, the story. There's something of Mallory and Irvin, I think, that would have appealed to Homer. It's heroic to try and, and to fail in the attempt at the cost of life. I just find... It just puts the hairs up on on the on the back of my neck. I've also written, I've written, I write about and think about uh, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, the man with the coolest middle name of all time, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, Scott of the Antarctic, and how he went out to try and reach the South Pole to be the first to reach the South Pole in 1911. But of course, as we all know, he was beaten to it and by some weeks by the Norwegian Roald Amundsen. But not knowing that, not knowing that that had happened, Scott and his party kept on, kept on, kept on, and got to the South Pole and then realised that they'd been beaten to the, to the punch. And of course, tragedy upon tragedy, they died on the return trip. They, they, they didn't make it back. They were overtaken by the elements. 
Amundsen seemed to get a better run at it weather-wise. I mean, it's not to, you know, he went in with dog sleds and you know and knew what he was doing in a way that Scott and the team didn't. He had more experience, and he he got in and out, but the weather shut down on like a big boot. You know, kind of descended on Scott and his team, and they died. But in that way, I, I, <laughs> it must be something twisted about me. But somehow, the, their failure is more moving than Roald Amundsen's success. I don't know. Maybe I'm just cussed about things like that. I don't know. But to fail while endeavouring to go the whole nine yards and beyond is something about being human and alive. I think it's a defining characteristic of us as a species. Robert Browning put it well. He said, a man's reach should escape his grasp or what's a heaven for? It's a good question. And there's also the American poet Emily Dickinson. And in an 1859 poem, she wrote, success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory as he defeated dying on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst agonised and clear. I'll leave it there. The day of days... A deputy in the German Reichstag walks into President Hindenburg's office and leaves as Chancellor of the whole country. Bitter regret, resentment and economic misery are curdling in the gut of Germany and Germans. With a gift for oratory and a taste for violence, like a lightning rod, he channels the people's grievances. By August 1934, he is absolute ruler, the most significant moment of the 20th century. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. You know you want to. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, nice and simple for these complicated times. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise connected to this series. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all the rest. My Instagram account is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments and it's published by Mighty Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.